Chapter 11, First Night By 1973, I was surrounded by fear and violence. Violence and fear surrounded me. The streets were a war zone. The TV and local papers spoke of little other than the latest atrocities. School was a survival course and home a dreadfully dreary place. Again, run on fear. Aged 14, culture was a side of life I had not yet encountered. One could sense what life might be like, but it was an unattainable dream. Fags, booze and girls were my oases in this desert. Then, one day, Bridget mentioned that she'd been contacted by a youth orchestra in search of players. They meet every Friday night in Oma, she said. Why don't you go? Orchestra? What even is that? Friday nights? Oma? You gotta be joking. There's no way I'm doing that. Came the predictable teenage response to such a ridiculous suggestion. My dad, who'd been engaged in his usual pretending-to-sleep routine over in his grossly misshapen leather outpost, suddenly piped up. Did you say orchestra? That'd be good for you, Paul. I'll drop you up at the bus on Friday. This decision taken, the old man calmly replaced his shovel-like hands on his portly tummy and eased back into his somnolent state that, for the most part, saved him from having to deal with reality. Getting on a stinky, dilapidated bus for a lengthy, rickety drive to stinky, dilapidated Oma was not what Friday evenings were designed for. Nevertheless, despite my constant protestations, even from the steps of the vehicle itself. Joseph saw to it that I took the bus. The bus was undeniably awful, and the journey seemed endless as we meandered through villages and made random stops to pick up other strays along the way. But there were already encouraging signs. I found a pal on the back seat, another fiddle player from Derry by the name of Brian Bergen. He was a lovely chap, and always seemed to have a full pack of embassy regals. Also, it hadn't escaped my notice that many of these waifs we picked up along the roadside were girls. So, a can of beer and this newfangled orchestra carry-on wasn't looking so bad after all. Ninety minutes later, our smoke-belching bone-shaker pulled into the forecourt of a school and we gratefully jumped off and filed into the strictlet assembly hall, which had already been laid out with enough chairs and stands to accommodate the eighty or so young musicians who had filled the room and were noisily catching up and tuning up. Feeling thoroughly out of my depth, I hung on to Brian Bergen, already a veteran of three or four such occasions. Soon, though, a nice lady helper hounded me out and showed me to my preordained seat, inside third desk of first violins. It was strangely disorientated to feel so at sea whilst doing something so familiar. Getting out my instrument, tuning up and preparing to play, I was very comfortable with. But being seated in this sea of eager, like-minded colleagues, I certainly was not. The cacophony of sound fell away to silence upon the arrival of our maestro. With the benefit of hindsight, I realise now that Alfie Bell had fashioned himself on someone I hadn't even heard of yet, but someone who would become one of my musical heroes, Leonard Bernstein. 
the sweater draped over the shoulders, the tousled wave of grey hair, the almost constant cigarette, and the not-so-faint aroma of hard liquor, all lent, lent him a studied air of authority. It may as well have been Lenny who took to the podium that night, considering the terror he instilled in my scrambled mind. Rossini, he bellowed. This one, for me, indistinguishable command set off a flurry of activity all around me, and within seconds this random gathering of unruly teenagers had organised the music on their stand and had struck the pose in readiness to begin playing. Before I knew what was happening, Lenny started waving about and they were off. The thieving magpie took off at such a rate that I, though I tried to feign some attempt at playing something, I found myself rooted to the spot, frozen, unable to move. Apart from anything else, the hieroglyphics before me on the page were indecipherable. This wasn't sheet music as I knew it. This wasn't some little grade six level set work for the local fish. This was full on orchestral music. It was like someone had closed the book on a swarm of mosquitoes trapping and squashing them mid-flight. There were endless directions written on the page, the majority of which meant absolutely nothing to me whatsoever. Tremolo, sul ponticello, pizzicato, con sordino, and so on. What, oh, what did this all mean? The playthrough and subsequent rehearsal of that overture went by in a blur. I was in shock. Everything happened so quickly. As the conductor and leader gave out instructions like, Let's go from B, up bow, uh, seven after G. Too loud at the change of key. Remember, it sends a sordini at J. I could hear them, but being numb was too slow to react. The thieving magpie flew out of my life just as suddenly as it had entered it. My trusty desk partner, reacting to yet another command I had completely missed, closed this book of tricks, consigning those busy mozzies back to their dark, silent and rather flat world. A bit of a commotion accompanied the unearthing of the next magic book on our stands. As its cover was lifted and the first of its many secrets lay exposed before us, a grand piano was wheeled into position next to the conductor, just a few feet from my chair. This fairy tale scenario continued as a little leprechaun of a man appeared from nowhere and approached the keyboard. He embraced the conductor, shook hands with our concert mistress, and with a short bow to us all, took his place. Our conductor introduced him. Ladies and gentlemen of the orchestra, please welcome our soloist, Mr. Derek Bell. Now, I thought Derek Bell was the world-famous harp player in the Mighty Chieftains, Yet here he was, nonchalantly turning up to play a piano concerto with an orchestra. I couldn't help noticing that our soloist could only really perch on his stool if he were to reach the pedals. But this was no impediment to his brilliance. Indeed, if anything, it enhanced the whole spectacle. From that magnificent opening exclamation, that call to arms of Grieg's masterpiece, I was once again sent into shock. Released from mere reality, I was transported to a dream world, luxuriating in a warm, emotional bath. 
I'm not sure I even pretended to play my violin this time. I was oblivious to my surroundings, high as a kite, not a drug in sight. It was when we entered the intensely intoxicating world of the slow movement, however, that our elfin musician really started to weave his magic. I think maybe the beauty lies in the conversational aspect of the music. This idea of a universal language with which we can somehow all communicate. Already from the first utterances of the muted strings. It mattered not that I didn't even have a mute. I was in no fit state to take part. Then the horn, the solo cello, and finally the entrance of the piano. Those oh-so-intimate transcendental phrases cast a spell on me that would not only change my life from that moment but remain equally powerful for a whole lifetime. I seem to be absorbing this heady potion through my entire body because my ears were blocked and my throat dry. My chest ached and my head felt as though it might explode which I suppose it did in a way causing a flood of hot, salty tears to flow freely from my red eyes. They cascaded down my cheeks, falling onto my violin, leaving stains that would prove difficult to erase. I feel blessed that my entire world was brought sharply into focus in those few short moments. It wasn't a decision I made, really. It was a calling I was powerless to resist. The Pied Piper had come to Oma, and I, hypnotised, was now following his tune.